2: The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: In the late 19th century, after the American Civil War, the railroads got to crisscross and uh, bring the two Coasts much, much closer to each other than had been before huge changes came to America. We were Railroaded, which is the title of a new book, quite a book, Railroaded Transcontinentals, The Making of Modern America. Our guest today is author Richard White. Thank you for being with us. Thank
1: you to be here. Bert.
0: Well, Richard White is an American historian, a past president of the Organization of American Historians, and the author of many influential books on the American West, Native American history, and environmental history. He's Margaret Byrne Professor of American History at Stanford University, where he's one of that university's most honored professors. And uh, railroaded is has been called a Leviathan, a provocative challenge to a major myth about the American West. The transcontinentals were a triumph of American entrepreneurship and ingenuity. He takes a look at that myth. He often they often proved to be a disaster for all but the handful that dreamed them up and abetted by cronyism and complacent governmental regu- regulation enriched themselves as they impoverished the rest. This tale of havoc is an unsettling allegory of today's financial collapse and essential reading for all unnerved by the thought that we seem doomed to repeat history, whether or not we are aware of it. And that was uh, Shepard Kretsch uh, reviewing the book. It's a powerful, angry book, perhaps, about politics, greed, corruption, money, and corporate arrogance, and the America formed out of them after the Civil War. Richard White, you start the book, Railroaded, by saying that The transcontinentals came to epitomize progress, nationalism, and civilization itself. Now, the ghastly civil war had just ended, and it really was a new world in the states, which uh, they were, the United States at the time. How significant a change did the railroads make to the pre-existing order of things in these United States?
1: Well, I mean, I can give you an easy example on that, Bert. That um, It had taken the United States or Americans, Anglo-Americans, roughly two and a half centuries to advance up to about the Missouri River. Um, with the railroads, the rest of the continent is incorporated into the United States in a generation um, with, with astonishing speed. Uh, not only is the continent um, put under American rule, and the same thing happens in Canada and northern Mexico with the, with the railroads, but it's attached to the world economy. Places which have been unimaginably distant now seem close. European capital can flow in and goods and commodities can flow out. The pace of migration steps up. And when I started the book, I thought, well, who could object? To this. this is exactly the kind of progress that Americans um, desired, that they imagined would happen, and it all comes to pass with astonishing rapidity. It's... God, the problem is, while well, this is gross, it ends up being what I call in the book dumb growth, for which many Americans pay a tremendous costs.
0: And the it, it was involved the creation of the uh, corporate structure that uh, that we have in place now. You you, you mentioned uh, you know shrinking distances, and there was something you called I believe it was spatial politics, the, the the politics of space. And uh, I wonder if you could talk about uh, what that means and how uh, how affected our living was by the beginning of the the railroads coming to various parts of the state uh, of the United States and uh, doing something very, very different to space.
1: Well, I think one of the ways to think about this is that um, most Americans in the 19th century thought about space in a fairly straightforward manner. They thought, well, you know, space is measured by distance, and what really matters is how quickly we can cover the distance. Well, railroad trains go faster than wagons. They go faster than horses. And so you get the great cliches of the 19th century that the railroads have erased time and space. But if we think about this a little differently, um, you can begin to see the great discontent that the railroads created. I, I mean, I live in um, Redwood City, which is near Palo Alto, about 30 miles south of San Francisco. Well, how far away is San Francisco? I can say 30 miles. But that really isn't how I measure space. I measure it either one by... Um, time, so that actually San Francisco gets closer or further away, depending on the time of day, depending on traffic, depending on other things. But if I put space further out, if I think about how long does it take me to get to New York or to Hong Kong or someplace else, I begin to think about cost. And in fact, railroads control cost. And what they find in the 19th century is cost does not depend necessarily on distance. Once railroads have the ability to set the cost of a trip, then, in fact, they can make places move closer together or they can make them move further apart. And that's the kind of thing that they do, which, in fact, means that people find their own destiny, merchants, farmers, others, are under the control of railroads, under the control of rate tables, because what they've created is a relational distance once we begin measuring these things by cost of transport.
0: And certainly before that, Space was just uh, your community for the most part. You didn't really have that much contact uh, with places really far away. At least that was the case throughout uh, most of the American West. And uh, suddenly that that changed. And and before that, if I'm correct, before the, the Civil War, Americans had really very little contact with the federal government. The, uh, my understanding is the only real contact and awareness of a federal government was the post office. And what ways did the transcontinental railroad help create a dominant government? That's a very big question, and that's largely what the book is about.
1: Well, in the 19th century, it's impossible to build these railroads without government support. These are subsidized railroads. Um, nobody who knows anything about railroad transport is going to um, build into the West because there's not enough people and there's not enough traffic. So what you're doing is you're building ahead of demand. Um People who run railroads in the East look at this, and they don't bite. The people who buy it are people who actually have very little experience in railroads. And most of those who do the investment really have no intention of making money from selling transportation. What they intend to do is make money building railroads. This is the Credit Mobilier. This is the insider construction companies on all of these railroads. They will build the railroads at extravagant cost and pocket the difference. The other thing they will do is to sell bonds and to manipulate stocks to make all kinds of money on the financial markets. But the railroads themselves go bankrupt. doesn't really matter that much to them on um, what matters to them is whether they're able to get a profit out of them but they can't do any of this without the federal government because in fact the federal government provides the subsidies either bond subsidies or more often land grants the federal government enforces or doesn't enforce the laws that are supposed to prevent this from happening the federal government gives them protection against indian nations who resist the attempt of um, driving railroads across their lands The federal government is going to protect them against their workers when they strike. And Mm -hmm. what they find is that they really have to be able to depend on federal aid. And more than that, when they compete against other railroads who also depend on federal aid, they're going to have to depend on supporting Congress. So what we begin to get is a system which goes down to the present day where corporations don't really compete just in the market. They compete in government. They Uh, compete for government favors, government protection. And this whole system really gets underway in the 1870s, and much of it is geared around uh, transcontinental railroads and their lobbies.
0: We are talking with uh, Richard White, author of the uh, powerful new book, Railroaded, the Transcontinentals and the Making of Modern America. And one of the things I love about history is, you know, looking today and seeing, oh, yeah, this kind of reminds me of uh, stuff earlier and a lot of the people today base their arguments on their perception of history and the tea party these days looks with fondness to the 19th century as a time romantic time of rugged individualism and a relatively unencumbered free market they want to go back to rugged individualism they want to go back to the free market and they they believe very deeply that oh just letting the free market go unencumbered, will uh, solve our problems. What does your book, Railroaded, have to say about that mythic picture of the 19th century?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing the Railroaded says is um, there is no such thing as free markets or national markets. All markets are political markets. All markets are created by laws and rules, and they have to do with government. So first of all, the sort of myth that there's a market out there that is somehow separate from human government governance is a myth so what you can't have is less regulation or more regulation. But if you go to the 19th century, what you have to do is start asking questions. Does the government intervene in these markets? Yes, of course it does. It's the one without it the gov- these railroads would not have been built. It subsidizes them, protects them. It does all kinds of things. Does it effectively regulate them? No, it doesn't. Yeah, no. Um, so what you're having is a is a process in which the federal government really acts along with these corporations in the case of the union pacific charters and creates the corporation which will have huge effects on the country as a whole but it doesn't regulate them these railroads are only going to be brought under control and really begin to run much more efficiently in the early twentieth century with the progressives and that's a story that comes after railroaded but that's a story of successfully regulated capitalism So in the 19th century, this is not a free market story, because without um, government aid, without government protection and subsidy, these railroads would, by and large, not have been built west of the 100th meridian. But it is a story of what happens when, in fact, there is no effective government regulation, and the result is not very pretty.
0: Well, specifically, how is it not very pretty? I mean, obviously, it seems that, you know, when you talk about environmental uh, consciousness it, i don't think it was there back then i mean the 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 earth and the sky and the water seemed limitless and you'd have to think about pollution uh, obviously you know burning coal you know caused a lot of pollution but but what were some of the other perhaps effects that uh, people who who kind of worship the unregulated market might not be so happy with
1: and, I mean, the first thing that's, that happened was that you have to consider that all of these um, corporations, virtually all of them, are financial failures. They go bankrupt, most of them at least once, many of them twice, some of them three times. And you think, well, that's supposed to be what happens in, in capitalism. If a, if a company doesn't work, it simply loses it. But um, in this case, the way bankruptcy works, they go into receivership, which allows them to continue to operate. Um, as they operate in receivership, they begin to drive down costs of other railroads. And you think, well, that's, that's to the good, too. Now we're getting more efficient transportation. But the, the nature of this, with the nature of the investment, it leads to depressions. It leads to the Panic of 1873. It's going to lead to the Depression of 1882-83. It's going to lead to the Depression of 1893. For even um, most conservative economists, these are called at the time railroad depressions. These are, re- these are depressions bought, brought about by the overinvestment, the waste of capital in railroads, the inability of them to pay their debts because they are the largest corporations of the time that drive the rest of the economy to ruin with them. This isn't something that happens once. This happens in a recurring pattern throughout the 19th century. And these are deep and serious depressions which will not be matched again until um, the depression of the 1930s. Each of them, in many ways, is worse than what we're going through right now, which is which is bad enough. So one of the things these things do is play a big role. Um, There are other factors, of course, involved in this, but they play a very big role in the economic collapses of the 19th century. The second thing they do for these railroads to survive, what they have to do is, as I've said, become involved in the political process. They lead to one of the most corrupt eras in American history. Um, Many of my fellow historians have begun to downplay corruption, and I probably was among them when I before I started this book. After looking at how politics works in the 19th century, corruption in the American economy is very, very important. It's very important in American politics, and it is pervasive throughout the late 19th century. And there is no understanding this corruption without looking at the railroad lobbies and the corruption of politics that they bring about. So this is another thing that they do. Um, The final thing that they do is that um, they will they will lead to, this isn't the final one, it's just the final one I'm going to mention, I guess, is that they lead to incredible class conflict with their workers. Because mm-hmm. as these railroads come into competition, as themselves they go bankrupt, they will themselves put pressure on the uh, um, wages of their workers, and they will lead to a series of horrific strikes in the um, 19th century, which are only won by the railroads because the federal government in the end will, in the Pullman strike and other strikes, commit government troops and federal force to putting down what amounts to worker rebellion. So they they exacerbate class conflict all across the United States. Um, So for all of these reasons, as well as the environmental reasons, which you alluded to, um, I regard the, the whole episode as fairly disastrous.
0: So then, it, uh, it, although it's often regarded as uh, you know, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad as a great triumph, <laughs> was it seen as a great triumph at the time? I mean, that, that's what we learn you know, as kids in the history books, the driving of the Golden Spike connecting you know, the East and West. At the time, though, was it seen as a, as a great triumph, as a significant step forward?
1: So at a magic moment in 1869 when the Golden Spike is driven, it is. I mean, this, is, this seems to validate American technology. And it's a techno- technological achievement, even though the railroad was badly built and had to be rebuilt. The whole idea of building a railroad that distant um, in a territory which, in fact, it was so hard to get men and equipment to was regarded as a national triumph. And Americans celebrated it, and they expected great things to come from it. The problem is, is that relatively quickly, the railroads don't work as they are planned. It turns out they haven't really conquered nature. In the first, two of the first three winters, they can't get trains across the Rockies or the Sierras for much of the winter because they simply haven't, hadn't, um, anticipated the heavy snowfalls and the ability to get through them. But it's even worse, when the railroads do run, they don't deliver transportation at as low a cost as promised. Certainly, it is far more efficient than a wagon. But on the Pacific coast, it is not more efficient than sending things by sea through Panama or even even for some commodities around Cape Horn. And the real thing is with Henry George, who's now forgotten, but is a, is a famous um, public intellectual in the nineteenth century, writes a book um, called Poverty and Progress." And what he wants to know is how come, So many people grow rich off of things like the railroads, while poverty seems to increase in a place like California. California expects a boom, but for much of the 19th century, California grows far more slowly than it anticipated and far more slowly than places like Kansas or Minnesota. So on the West Coast, there's a disillusionment with the railroads that comes fairly quickly. And the same thing is going to happen as most of the others are built. They have great promises, but what they'll do, the least they finish the Central Pacific and Union Pacific, the history of the others is for years they build out, fail, stop where they are, get money again when the Depression's over, start again. But it's really only going to be in the late, very late 19th century, really the 20th century, when the railroads will achieve their promise. It's not that you don't need transcontinental railroads. My argument is you didn't need them when they built them, and um, you didn't have to build them the way they built them.
0: Fascinating, and the locations that, you know, some towns, if it got a railroad, it could help them. But if another town didn't, then I'm sure there was some uh, jockeying for position there among the various different towns. We are talking with author Richard White about uh, his new book, Railroad of the Transcontinentals and the Making of Modern America. You mentioned uh, uh, briefly the, the Pullman Strike of 1893. And if you look at the history of the 20th century, there was a lot of bloodshed uh, in labor strife. And it does seem that Pretty consistently, the federal government and oftentimes the state governments too came down on the side of the corporations against the workers. Consistently, is is this perhaps the the Pullman strike may have been one of the earliest. This whole uh, uh, way of dealing with things of the federal government consistently taking the side of the the side of the of the corporations uh, as against the the workers. Did it kind of get its start then, and and what part did the Great Pullman strike of 1893
1: play Well in the 19th century, the Pullman strike on the railroads is the culmination of a long struggle. And, and one of the things we have to realize about the 19th century is workers were not powerless. Um, workers had managed to get fairly high wages on these railroads. They are fighting by and large to protect them. And what they're best at, as I mentioned in the book, is this sort of guerrilla warfare over work rules and work actions. So as long as the struggles are small-scale, the workers do very well. small-scale strike, the workers are probably going to come out okay. And as long as the workers have to depend on local government, town governments, county governments, again, very often many of these officials are workers themselves, and there's a great deal of popular support for the workers. Even when you move up to state governments, here it varies more, but again, there's going to be um, – more local support for workers and workers' strikes if the, if the government intervenes, it will only be to, to um, protect public order and not to suppress the strike. Hmm. Where this changes and has changed fully by the Pullman strike is um, the federal government is intervening. And, and again, the people who are intervening, Are um, the Attorney General is, is quite explicit about this in the Cleveland administration. Where they're intervening is to suppress the strike itself. The the real issue is whether they're going to carry the mail. And there's a whole series of technical issues. The workers make all kinds of compromises. They will attach mail cars to the trains. They will let the mail go through. They have no desire to interfere with the mail. But what the companies insist on is either attaching the mail car to a Pullman car or putting Pullman cars on the trains when the railroads are boycotting the Pullman, or the workers are boycotting the Pullman cars. And so they set up a confrontation which never had to take place. And at that point, they will send in troops. There is going to be violence, but in most places, there is not violence before the troops come. There's only violence after the troops come. So the troops are less suppressing violence than actually provoking violence. But the end of the strike is going to be the crushing of the American Railway Union. Eugene V. Debs, who will later go on to be a socialist candidate for president, is going to serve time in jail. It really radicalizes Debs more than anything else. And it's a clear sign that, at least by the 1890s, when the government intervenes in these strikes, it is very largely going to be in favor of corporations and against workers.
0: Mm. So we're living with that now. And and one of the questions that comes up uh, often these days that people get frustrated about uh, is the notion of corporate personhood. Did it—this idea that that corporations have the same rights as actual flesh-and-blood human beings— And we're paying the price for that now with the uh, uh, decisions of the Supreme Court, uh, Americans United, about uh, being able to spend however much they want to support or oppose any particular candidates. Did the notion of corporate personhood originate with the railroad corporations?
1: Yeah, it actually um, originated with two cases, um, which are right around where I'm sitting right now. One is the Southern Pacific versus Santa Clara County, another one. Southern Pacific versus San Mateo County. And these will evolve over time. And you're perfectly right. The evolution goes on to this day with the recent Supreme Court decisions. But what they do is interpret the 14th Amendment to, in effect, give corporations, which is artificial persons, certain rights as citizens. Um, Now, at the time, the outrage against this is fairly profound. I remember the California governor at the time says that the court has made a fundamental mistake. It's not that there doesn't have to be some legal rights for corporations, but he said corporations are persons which are created by the government. Without the government, they do not exist. They are chartered by the government. Human persons are people who created the government. You are now making creatures of the government have the same rights mm. as the people, the citizens who created the government. And this is both illogical, in a certain sense crazed, and he said it is going to have terrible ramifications. And I think mm. he's right.
0: Ugh, we are paying dearly for that now. Uh, things could be so, frankly, much better. And I can't help but believe, as a student of history, that, uh, and hopefully as one who participates, to my little bit, in making history, that someday corporate personhood perhaps in my lifetime will be done away with, reexamined and done away with. Of course, nothing comes easy. But uh, in, the, in the 19th century, this is just after the uh, American Civil War, where because of a few mistakes, the uh, Confederacy lost and uh, was not able to go its own way. But with the South in ruins and the North in fine shape, all attention turned to the West, I wonder if you could tell us about how some of the early days of, of uh, this going on, the Pacific Railway Act of 1864, and perhaps how the post Civil War period provide a great and unprecedented new platform for men of great ambition.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that we have to we have to think about here is that. Um, Rarely in American history has a single political party had the ability to put its ideas into practice in the way the Republican Party did during the Civil War and immediately after the Civil War. As you say, the South is both in first in rebellion and then defeated. Um, The Democrats are tarred as the party of treason. The uh, Republicans uh, dominate the presidency and both houses of Congress. And they pretty much write their platforms into law. Um, There are all kinds of contradictions in the Republican Party. But the the critical thing here is that for those developmental Republicans, those who are descendants of the Whigs, this is the chance to really put in practice having the government create an infrastructure that is well-intentioned. What the government intended, what the Republican Party intended, was the government would provide railroads, canals, aid to building these things, which would allow the replication of the North as it existed then. And they see it as a free labor society. They see it as a group of relatively equal small producers who are going to spread over the country, who will very rich and very poor, won't arise because competition will present it. They have a a sort of capitalist utopian vision of what the future is going to look like. Mm. Um, The odd part about all of this is that they end up creating a society very, very different from this. But in 30 years, this program and other developments that take place in the time is going to lead to a country with very rich and very poor, an America that many people didn't recognize, a much more diverse America than they thought. Um, far from having a homogeneous citizenry, as they thought, it's going to be a citizenry as this country industrializes with more and more immigrants, more and more diversity of both race and religion. Um, that in many ways, it's it's a sort of cautionary tale that just because you have political power and a clear vision doesn't mean that, in fact, you're going to be able to control events. It also means that there are going to be those people who see their abilities to take advantage of it. These are, you know, these are people who, by and large, were not necessarily prominent at the beginning of the period, mm-hmm. and it's not even that they're going to build great things, but what they realize is the world is changing very, very quickly, and that those willing to take risks, great risks, um, and those willing to sort of play fast and loose can get great rewards.
0: <laughs> Amazing. And, and it goes on and on and on. So who were, and, and your book, uh, railroaded goes into uh, a lot of different uh, personalities there, almost entirely white men, actually, uh, because it was the 19th century. Who were these railroad men? Uh, they didn't work in the railroads, but were they the... the uh, you know, mythical robber barons of the Gilded Age lore. Were they even really men of the railroad? Well,
1: the people who make money off the railroads are not railroad men, in the sense that, as they admit, they know very little about operating railroads, and um, they prove it. Very often they drive them into the ground. Uh, What they tend to be is people who... Learn to use the new financial markets. Um, you know, my favorite of them is Collis P. Huntington. I right? come to have a sort of grudging affection for. It. It's easier to have affection for him after he's dead than when he's alive. But he is. You can't say Collis P. Huntington is honest, but you can't say he's frank. And that many of the things I put in the book come from Collis P. Huntington's correspondence because he will describe in great detail, which clarifies things for me, what he is doing and why he's doing it. He's very often describing this to Leland Stanford, who is not the sharpest tool in the shed among the associates of the Central Pacific Railroad and has to have things explained to him, but that's really good for me because I have to have things explained to me, too.
0: And don't you teach at Stanford University?
1: There's all kinds of ways by um, manipulating stock, floating bonds, arranging the finances of the railroad, that the people behind the railroads can make a great deal of money, even as the railroads themselves go under. These guys are masters at setting up all kinds of shadow companies. You know that's they have the contract and finance company, the Pacific Improvement Company. These are these are things like the Crédit Mobilier. What you do is you move money around from company to company, and uh, and that's how you manage to keep the the cash the cash flowing. He also. Uh, recognizes he's going to have to deal with Congress, and um, he is the one who gives a great deal of attention to how corporate lobby should work and um, to establishing what in the book I call friendship, um, which is not outright bribery, but is other ways of manipulating congressmen.
0: Yes, that is a uh, significant uh, discussion in the book, Railroaded uh, Friends. And and today... You know, part of the among the huge frustration that there is in Washington now is uh, a lot of the the power of of insiders, and it seems a lot of frustration actually by a lot of the the Tea Party people who feel like this isn't our government, this isn't a, you know a democracy, a republic that there are insiders who you know are really taking control, and it seems like one of the uh, uh, powerful uh, effects of this period of the development of the transcontinental Railroad was that uh, lobbies uh, happened and, and having friends in, in high places and uh, the massive corruption that hindered uh, th- that happened. did the railroad corporation set a standard for corporate behavior and power that's still in effect?
1: Um, You know, I think they do, and there are periods in American history where this isn't going to be as strong, but I think you're right, the parallel between now and the late 19th century is a very, very strong one, and the way friendship works is that it's not about um, bribery. My guys, the people who run these railroads, will bribe people, but they'll bribe people when, in fact, all other policies have failed. Bribery is a policy of last resort. What you'll do with friendship is you'll operate in a different way. Um, Many of the people in Congress are lawyers. At the time, they will be given uh, cases to argue before the Supreme Court, or they'll be put on retainer by the railroad companies. Um, Railroads recognize that information, whether stock is going to rise or fall, whether bonds are going to rise or fall, is an easy way to make money. The railroads deal in information. Insiders in Congress will get information about what they should buy and what they should sell. Um railroads will give them land, usually under an uh, assumed name. They won't give it directly to them, but they'll give them to others. Their relatives are under an assumed name or some sort of corporate fiction that they will they will allow them to take land. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're done with their term in Congress, they will be able to serve the railroad corporations. Railroad corporations, um, all they ask for is reciprocity. They will look out for the interests of congressmen. All they ask is the congressmen look out for their interests, too. And they set up this pattern of friendship in the 1870s, which will serve them very, very well. It doesn't work perfectly. As um, the more visible the railroad is, the more vulnerable it is. But what the railroads learn is you don't have to win elections, that the railroads are not that effective in democratic politics, but they're very effective at manipulating people after they are elected. And that's how friendship works. And that's the word that they use. They use friend as the word that goes. Over, recurs over and over again in their correspondence. There is no political success without friends, and the railroads certainly have friends.
0: We are talking on the Bert Cohen Show with author Richard Wright about the new book, Railroaded, the Transcontinental and the Making of Modern America. Very, very insightful. And uh, one of the often quoted characters in the book is Charles Francis Adams, Who was he, and what did he mean when he said, quote, the Pacific Railroads have settled the Indian question? Well, Charles Francis
1: Adams is another one of these characters who um, I became very, very interested in. Charles Francis Adams is the grandson and great-grandson of presidents. He's uh, the grandson of um, John Adams, the great-grandson of John Quincy Adams. He's the brother of Henry Adams, who wrote The Education of Henry Adams. He goes into business following his career in the Civil War, and he um, is president of the Union Pacific Railroad. And what he means by the government has settled the Indian question is that it is the railroads that allows the government to put an end to Indian wars by defeating Indians much more quickly in the far west than they ever had been able to do in other parts of the country. And they can do it because they can move troops so rapidly and move supplies so rapidly across the west. What's interesting about this is this becomes a secondary rationale for the transcontinentals. The transcontinentals were supposed to be built in order to retain the West for the Union. They were supposed to be built as a weapon against the Confederacy. But the problem is they're only starting to get built when the Civil War is over, so you don't need them against the Confederacy. They then become a weapon against Indian peoples. But my argument in the book is, If you hadn't built the railroads, many of these Indian wars would have been utterly unnecessary. Um, You know, they they certainly do end Indian resistance, but they also provoke the very Indian resistance that they ended. And if the railroads had been built later, more slowly, many of the sort of deplorable, nasty little wars which mar the West probably would have been unnecessary.
0: And that's one thing that, that... You do in in this book, especially toward the end, is uh, looking at at history and and you know some historians feel like they just their role is to present facts, which of course are seen from many different points of view and you know we all know somebody can look at the same facts and get a totally different picture. Uh, picture, is it appropriate for historians to give voice to things that did not happen, but could have, and and you bring up. If, for example, the railroads had been later, they waited for a demand before there was a supply, uh, that things could have been different and, and it might have been a, a, a more or less uh, uh, genocidal uh, situation when it comes to the uh, Native Americans. Why, why is it important for, for historians to give voice to things that did not happen but could have?
1: Well, I've taught history for for many years now. At a certain point, I realized that um, if, in fact, everything has to be the way it is, why study history at all? I mean, if this is the only way that things could have turned out, then all we have to deal with is the way things are. How it got that way might be as, you know, some sort of, interest to those, and Aquarian interest to those just interested in the past, but we have to deal with the way things are. Well, but if history, in fact, is always indeterminate, it's not that anything can happen, but many things could have happened, and then, in fact, in the past are latent possibilities which might recur again, then history becomes much more vital. And I think one of the things that historians have to do is to restore to the past this sense that the people living there, just like people living now, See a world of, word of multiple possibilities, and they struggle with each other over which possibilities are going to come to fruition. And it is not at all inevitable that the people who won had to win. We can explain why they won, but that's very different from explaining that they had to win. In the late 19th century, there was very, very different visions of what the United States could and should be. And the, one of the things I try to do in Railroad, around the railroads themselves, is to resurrect some of those older visions of of a different America. And I think those kinds of visions aren't gone yet. They still run within this country. They're not the dominant ones anymore, but they have as long and as significant a past as the ones which eventually triumphed.
0: Yes, and uh, I think we, we see that going on every second of every day. I look at uh, maybe this is not fair. Uh, Professor White, you know I'd be curious to your comment this comments. I look at the nuclear power industry. These things were built before there was a demand. Uh, they required great political power, you know, having friends in high places, terrible locations, very expensive very expensive, had to be done with uh, massive subsidies, and there were better alternatives available. It seems like I, I'm reminded of, of the railroads in, in many different ways with regard to these particular aspects. Does that seem uh, reasonable?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's appropriate, because what you, what you look at is many, many different industries. Um, We see that they only come about because decisions were made in the past that once those decisions are made, as bad as they were in retrospect, they leave us with a legacy that we have to deal with. Um, Even if you erased every nuclear power plant today, you'd still be left with the legacy of all the waste that are produced already, very toxic waste that we have to do something with, and that our um, children and grandchildren and people for millions of years will have to do do something with. That these kinds of things, I'm not somebody who necessarily thinks that government shouldn't subsidize some industries, but you should be very, very careful before you start turning over large amounts of money to private corporations um, and, in fact, granting them the kinds of legal protections they might come back to haunt you.
0: I'd say so. And I wonder how some of the Tea Party people today would feel about the reality that railroads got, as you say, a lot of public aid without concomitant public control. <laughs> yeah. It seems like nuclear power, like a lot of the places where they were put, the people of the local community really didn't want it, but they got plunked down there anyway. Yeah,
1: I mean, it, it's, it's one of the things that sort of amazes me about the railroads, and I mean, the Tea Party with its affection for Ayn Rand, and Ayn Rand, yes. of course, um, Took the kinds of people I'm talking about in, the t- in um, Railroaded as her heroes. Yes. Um, these are supposedly going to be the great figures of of American capitalism, but Ayn Rand's version of them is one that I simply do not recognize, having studied them in the 19th century.
0: Well, it's off. I, I did a show recently here that fascinated uh, me, quite frankly, that uh, the, the researcher Michelle Goldberg did a lot of research and and really found that beliefs actually trump facts. And I don't mind doing that. So (laughs) I like to think that facts, well, they might be inconvenient things and and are important and can help us uh, take a hold of history and change it uh, for the future. And business historian Alfred Chandler described the 19th century railroad corporations as the harbingers of order, rationality, and efficient organization – this seems to be a prevailing view. Uh, how accurate is it? Well, it, it's again. I have to be.
1: I have to be careful here because I came into this book believing Chandler was right, and my problem was when I started looking at these railroads, the transcontinentals. That is not what they were i mean these are these are corporations which in fact are are highly irrational much of the time they 're full of feuding corporate executives they don 't really exert control they 're in, in, incredibly mismanaged. Um, I can say that about the transcontinentals in the nineteenth century i can 't necessarily say it about the Pennsylvania Railroad, which Chandler studied, but i can say is if Chandler's trying to read the Pennsylvania Railroad into all other corporations, it certainly doesn't work, at least for the 19th century. Hmm. You know, I would say that eventually corporations do become bureaucratic and orderly, but I think it's far past the period where where Chandler um, said it did, and it might be due to um, factors other than the functions of the corporation themselves. So I... I I was um surprised the extent in which Chandler failed to describe the corporations that I'm looking at. These are um quite unruly and um quite disorderly corporations <laughs> in the late nineteenth century
0: it's, it's I have to be amused at that you know and and we mentioned about Ayn rand and and the belief the the firm belief in their survival of the fittest, which was really, you know, how it was taken to mean was not what Darwin really meant by that, but it certainly was uh, interpreted and and put to work. Now, in terms of the, the idea of survival of the fittest, reality was, as you say, that the unsuccessful and the incompetent not only survived, but prospered and became powerful. So was the Gilded Age a triumph of the unfit?
1: Well, in some ways, I I mean, I say that. I say it obviously for effect, but in some ways it is. Because you would expect, for example, when corporations go bankrupt, they disappear. When people drive corporations like Henry Villard does into the ground repeatedly, that no one would trust them with their money again. But in fact, Henry Villard, people like Leland Stanford, come out of this um, quite well. And the corporations that do go bankrupt actually will survive and become powerful. They do so largely because they have friends in very, very high places, which will intervene to protect them. So any idea, I mean, as you say, that the reading of social Darwinism, that society is about the survival of the fittest, is absolute nonsense. That's not what Darwinian biology is about. Um, But even on its face, if you try to say, well, the 19th century shows the fittest surviving, that doesn't seem to be the case, at least in the case of the Western corporations that I look at and the people who ran them.
0: So fascinating. I, I encourage people to read this book, uh, Railroaded, the Transcontinental Making of Modern America. We're speaking on the Burt Cohen Show with Richard uh, White. And obviously, a lot of the uh, men who head who this up, the uh, greedy guys who you know, uh, uh, you know, know, did a lot of, of harm, perhaps, to America, take it uh, on the chin in many ways. But it's certainly not a one-sided book, not at all. Many on the left today would probably reflexively agree with a group of people called the anti-monopolists, the farmers and the workers. And there's you know, the romantic picture of the little guy, the farmers and the workers, challenging the power of these big, rapacious monopolies. But with the faith in competition and the, again, adaptations of, of Darwin's uh, Survival of the Fittest, there were some rather unattractive aspects of the anti-monopolists by today's standards, and, and and how they believed in in competition and survival of the fittest. There, and what did that do to the Indians and the Black Americans?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me as I studied anti-monopolism, and in, and in some ways, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to it, but in other ways, I really, its cultural core is around the idea of white manhood. Um, and what they did is they used white manhood very, very effectively. White manhood meant the ability of a white man in a competitive economy to earn enough money to support his wife, who would, of course, be, usually be at home, or always be at home, and his children, um, and, in fact, to be able to negotiate freely and equally with other white men. What this left is everybody who did not qualify for white manhood, which became black men, certainly Indian peoples, and above all in the far west, Chinese immigrants, outside and as a threat to white manhood. So many of these movements are deeply racist, and they're not sort of peripherally racist or accidentally racist. They're racist at their core because, in fact, their key cultural idea is around the protection of white men. The protection of white men will turn them against corporations, but it also turns them against other Americans who are not white. And there's no dealing with either the unions or many of the anti-monopolist political movements without recognizing this, um, this racist core. There are, of course, people who fight against it, but they are very much in the minority.
0: And w- I wonder what part of the 19th century philosophy of man against nature, white man overcoming nature, doing whatever was necessary to tame, control, and absolutely dominate the wildness, including the Indians. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what did that do to the, the West, to the building of the nation? Certainly the private interests made out really well, really well, whether or not they were skilled or if, if you know, it, it followed traditional laws of capitalism. But how much did the country as a whole benefit from this railroad building frenzy of the late nineteenth century? It, it it you know, on the face of it, it benefited a lot.
1: Well, I, I think what you have to do is you have to distinguish between different parts of the country. And you also have to distinguish between American um attitudes. I think there's been An overrating of how much Americans in the 19th century believed in conquest of nature. What they usually believed in is what they saw themselves as a kind of natural force, and the word they often used was they were finishing nature. That they were doing is taking the natural environment and doing as God intended, bringing it into full productivity. So they never—it's not that they never thought of conquering it, but they very often would think in this term of finishing. And they would often think of the railroads as the final product of finishing. And if you look at the ideal representations of railroads in the nineteenth century, what they show is a railroad train running through fertile fields and towns off in the distance, um, and a general prosperity all around. Yes. And what I do in the book is I say, well, this, this is not a totally nonsensical vision, that up into about the 98th meridian, a line that runs about through the middle of Kansas and Nebraska, um, there is a sense in which railroads were needed. They did bring prime agricultural lands into production, and there was a kind of relative prosperity. And there's also in California a need for railroads that will run into San Francisco and bring goods in California so you can put them on ship. What I'm talking about is the transcontinentals, the railroads, the trunk lines that run from the 98th or 100th meridian off into the west coast. These are the lines that are pushed forward way too fast. And these are lines that bring with them a kind of development which is environmentally destructive. And it's environmentally destructive because the railroads need something to carry. So what they will encourage is first the hunting of buffalo, then later on um, the cattle industry, mm-hmm. mining industry, on um, the expansion of the wheat belt, producing products for which there was relatively little market demand, and all of these industries also end in both economic collapse and with real environmental damage left behind.
0: Hmm. So again, building a big supply of railroads and then, having to create the demand uh, sort of uh, uh, backwards. And uh, again, talking about uh, today's Tea Party, have to keep coming back back to them. We hear the term astroturf. Of course, that means false grassroots. And we had the real grassroots of the anti-monopolists back in the late 19th century. Uh, And lobbying, you know, we now refer to as lobbying in Congress. Uh, It appeared perhaps at the time, to be occurring spontaneously from regular people trying to take control. Was was there a, a precedent for this uh, uh, astroturf, you know, appearing to be the public will? Did that kind of machination go on by the, uh, the railroad barons?
1: Yeah, in some ways they invented it. Um, you know, one of the things that Grenville Dodge, who's a— A fascinating figure, but one of his incarnations is a a, a lobbyist for the Union Pacific and the Texas Pacific. What he realizes is that, well, friendship will take you a long way, but politicians are politicians. They need some cover. They need to be responding to something that's supposedly coming from their constituents. So what he realizes is that he can manufacture that. He can manufacture it through newspapers. He can manufacture it through petitions. He can manufacture it through all kinds of ways in which the railroads will set up what looks like a spontaneous movement taking place in a congressional district or back in a senator's home state. But the whole thing has been arranged and manipulated by the railroads. One of the things the railroads recognize for both finances and politics is how critical information is. The railroads themselves Mm -hmm. will... um, first they 'll take control of newspapers and they realize that is expensive and doesn 't work really well because in fact, once a newspaper is identified with the railroads it uses loses its utility. So what they will do is make friends of individual newspapermen. Mm-hmm. They will very often write the articles themselves, though someone else will sign it and put it into the papers. When you go back to the to the um, railroad correspondence, you recognize, and they taught me how to read newspapers um, when things is coming when things are coming from the railroad and when they aren't. When petitions have been geared up by the railroads and whether they're spontaneous, all of these things, this kind of astroturfing, is very much in place by the eighteen seventy and it's the creation of railroad lobbies. And they become very good at it very quickly.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Railroad, for AstroTurf today. Unbelievable. Today, of course, we have the Koch brothers uh, doing basically the same thing, manipulating public opinion quite quite well, remarkably. Again, we're talking to author Richard White about his uh, new book, Railroaded the Transcontinentals, The Making of Modern America, published by Norton. And uh, one differentiating aspect of America as compared to Europe is that, you know, in Europe, they've had hereditary aristocracies. A lot of Americans don't like that. People uh, believe they come to wealth through their own efforts. And I wonder about the experience of the railroad men possibly shoring up the American dream that anyone can become rich and charles uh, francis adams on, on in in the book right toward the end had some uh, very interesting words about who could become rich in america and what what kind of people they really were and i wonder if uh, i might uh, prevail on you to to read some of uh, what charles francis adams wrote
1: sure that's i think on page 505 if yes I recall. yes it is Okay, and this is one of the most famous things that that Adams wrote. He wrote it in his autobiography. And he says, "Um, Business success, money-getting, comes from a rather low instinct. Certainly, so far as my observation goes, it is rarely met with in combination with the finer or more interesting traits of character. I have known, and known tolerably well, a good many successful men, big financially, men famous during the last half century, and a less interesting crowd I do not care to encounter. Not one that I have ever known would I care to meet again, either in this world or the next. Nor is one of them associated in my mind with the idea of humor, thought, or refinement. A set of mere money getters and traders. They're essentially unattractive and uninteresting. That quote I think reflects as much about Charles Francis Adams as about the men he's talking about. Um But it is something that comes from first-hand knowledge. He did spend um, the better part of his life working with them.
0: Fascinating, fascinating. And, uh, you know, there was that movie a few years ago I kept thinking about. I think it came out in 1987. I'm not sure. The movie Wall Street, the original. I haven't seen the new one. uh, Celebrated unbridled greed. Greed is good. Uh, I wonder if the reader of your book Railroaded, is faced with what that really means. Is the reader led to witness the failings of that philosophy?
1: Well, I, I think in the 19th century, um, anybody who can look at what happens during the Gilded Age and come out with a defense of greed as serving a higher good, I would like to hear that. Defense. <laughs> um, what strikes me about it is that 19th century Americans didn't really accept that. Um The people who, in fact, got these fortunes had to endlessly apologize and justify them. And as you say, for people rising from the bottom, well, there certainly is a great deal of social mobility in many of the people who rise to head these railroad corporations. But the problem is is that their fellow Americans saw this as a result of privilege. They saw it as a result of special favors. They Mm. saw it as a result of government subsidies. They saw it as a result of laws that protected them. They saw it as a result of ultimate unfairness. So even though these people rose, it is not as if all Americans praised them. Many Americans saw them as precisely the problem, as the triumph of privilege in American society.
0: Fascinating, and uh, today we have the Tea Party defending uh, these people. You know, the, the richest among us, saying you can't tax them anymore. They, they deserve all their great wealth. They've earned every penny, deserve to keep it all. And I wonder how they'd
1: feel if well, they. Um, that, I mean, that, that's one of the fascinating things because I think there are real similarities between the motivation of the Tea Party and the motivation of anti-monopolists. But what happens is the anti-monopolists, by and large, attack corporations and attack the rich. And the Tea Party, at least in my estimation of it, seems to attack government and to be most
0: resentful towards the poor.
1: Um, So even though there are similarities in motivation, the political expressions of them are very, very different.
0: But they're also uh, affected by the... uh astroturfing certainly the money well we've come up to the end of the hour fascinating interview incredible book railroad uh, the transcontinental's making of modern america author richard white it's available on norton books thank you very much for being with us and hopefully we can learn from history
1: okay. i hope so my pleasure Bert.
0: thank you
2: Got my baby and go